I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas, a show and a podcast where readers meet writers, and I'm glad you're here. Today, we're going to look back at three conversations with women who practice and share their faith through different denominations and different ways. I found each one of these conversations illuminating and invigorating. We begin with author and pastor Amy Butler. I talked to her in December, right around the holidays. Butler's book is Beautiful and Terrible Things, Faith, Doubt, and Discovering a Way Back to Each Other, and it chronicles the markers of her life, how she defied the restrictions of conservative family to pursue ministry, how she endured fractious congregations and personal loss, and how she ultimately survived it all to find a more hopeful and grounded faith. We started our conversation by talking about who didn't show up on the day that she was ordained. I think like a lot of people, I grew up in a very conservative evangelical context. And so, you know, my parents weren't there, for example. My grandparents, people who had been so important to my uh, formative faith years, they just couldn't show up. And that has remained constant throughout my career and my life and, and, and a source of pain, yes, for sure. I think you should, if you will, explain more about what the conservatism of the faith community that you grew up in, how important that was to your parents and your grandparents, and then how that prevented them to come seeing you ordained in their faith. Yes, I grew up in a kind of religion that was very structured with lists of rules and black and white expectations for how you get into heaven, you know, a recipe for how to live your life, which I can understand. I mean, I can understand why people like that kind of religion. It's very safe. And that was the case for my family. It was very clear what you do and what you don't do. And one of the things you don't do for sure, if you're a woman, is be a pastor. I you know, thought all of my childhood that I would probably do the wild and exotic thing of marrying a pastor, if anything. <laughs> um, but I had by then defied all the rules and was, was not following what was expected of me. So I think, you know, in best case scenario, they thought I was going through a phase um, it's been about 30 years, so I'm pretty sure they, they know that's not the case. But but for sure, I was blatantly and openly breaking the rules. Just to give our, our listeners a sense that you don't just mean, you know, that your parents got over it and your grandparents got over it. I read that scene that you describe with your grandfather in his retirement home room. Will you describe what yes. he said to you? And, and I guess I also want to hear, you had lived with this for a long time, what, what it felt like when he said this at yes. the, near the end of his life, in the middle of yours. Yes, you know, Carrie, I've been just come back from a book tour, and this was the scene that people brought up the most in really? the five weeks I was on the road. It was really interesting. I was probably 18 years into ordained ministry and had stopped by the retirement home to visit my grandparents. I, by then, avoided him because he was a very difficult person, but managed to run into him in the dining room while I was visiting my grandmother. And he, you know, motioned over to me. I walked over and he told me I was the biggest disappointment of his life. And, um, you know, pastoral work is hard. You hear a lot of terrible things from people. And, I was not prepared for that moment. And that really sent me reeling. He was able to just get that last dig in right at the end. And it was one of the examples in my life of how bad religion rips us apart. How would you describe what the Baptist church believed then about women leaders in the church and what they believe now. I, I'm interested in how much it has changed over the course of your ministry. 
That's an interesting question. And a lot of people think of Baptists as monolithic and we are not. There are every extreme of Baptists you can imagine. Of course, when we think of Baptists, we think of Southern Baptists who are in the news a lot for um, allowing the abuse of young children to continue and many other distasteful things. I actually was ordained in that tradition and um, have migrated my way north to American Baptists who are open and loving and make space for everyone. And uh, so I have geographically moved my Baptist identity and dear God, let us hope that people of faith have moved a little bit more toward the inclusive message of Jesus, please. But your sense is that Southern Baptists have held pretty firm to this idea that women should not lead churches and should not be ministers. Is that right? That's correct. In fact, recently in Texas, as recent as last week, there was a new rule passed that no church would be allowed to stay in the larger denomination with a woman in pastoral leadership. Uh, so, you know, I feel at this point in my career, like if that's what you want to spend your time on, knock yourself out. There are other things we need to do. We are living in a world that's hurting and, you know, people need hope. So I just, I just mostly ignore it at this point. You know, it, it's such a, it's such an important point though, because you've just alluded to this furor that's going on right now in the Southern Baptist church, because they've gone on the record, the church leadership is opposing expanding the statue of limitations for victims of sexual abuse. Russell Moore, the former head of the church's ethics and religious liberty committee has spoken out about this and told the New York Times, mm -hmm. I've never seen such unmitigated and justified anger among Southern Baptists. It sounds like maybe the the church itself, the congregations, the people want to push in a way that the leadership is bound and determined, it will not. And I wonder where that goes. <laughs> I think you just summed up what life in church is like. Institutions are so intractable, <laughs> they won't change. And um, that that's a hard thing for pastors and leaders, but really I think that's a microcosm of our country in this moment. And that's one of the reasons I wrote this book because I, I wanted to address how we cross boundaries and bridges that seem intractable when we're in conversation and relationship with people who just fundamentally will not change. I'm thinking about what you said a few minutes ago about um, your your grandparents' adherence to a faith that was very strict and that they felt very safe in that faith. I mean, yes. in, I yes. know that uncertainty and change is frightening for a lot of people, but but yes. there is a sense, right, that these churches, the congregations themselves, the, the, the faithful want the church to evolve and that the leadership is at some point going to have to respond to that, don't you think? I hope so, Carrie, but I have spent a lot of my career working on the edges of institutions trying to push us in that direction, and it is really hard. It's hard to change. And a lot of us have in our mind this 1950s Christian America that does not exist anymore. It's time to move on. What does that 1950s Christian America look like? Mother, father, three kids, everybody dressed nicely, showing up at church on time, sitting in the pew they sit in every week, attending programs at church four times a week, giving a lot of money, and showing the world a life that is perfect and beautiful. Who wants that? <laughs> I mean, besides <Not> me. <laughs> me. 
I mean, that's a church that is so outside most people's, that's a community that is so outside most people's experience. It's unreal. And I think most of us know that. Yes, yes, we know. We know that what we really want is a place where we can be ourselves, where we can show up with all of our foibles and failures and places that we hurt and questions that we live with and and be okay. But we're also afraid of being vulnerable. The show is called Big Books, Bold Ideas, and you can hear it right there in that conversation. Because while we are talking with the author of a book, we are talking about big, expansive ideas. You're listening this morning. I hope you love books. I hope that's why you tune in to our book show every Friday at 11 o'clock. It also just happens to be, Kelly Gordon is joining me, the last day of the winter member drive. Funny how that all worked out together, isn't it, Cal? <laughs> kind of funny, but kind of planned. Here we I are know. to say, I know. yes, I, I'm so loving that I get to talk with you and to talk to our members around the book content that Carrie, you and I get to produce every week because we're so passionate about it. Absolutely. Passionate about books passionate about these ideas that are contained within and also passionate about the variety of topics that we get to cover on this show, be it faith conversations, be it science conversations, be it even things about history and our democracy or just novels that bring up things that matter to all of us that are universal human experiences. So we are here today, like you said, the final day of the Winter Member Drive. And there are still some challenge funds to unlock. Oh, do tell. Yes, fantastic. If we can raise $75,000 before two o'clock, we will unlock an additional $25,000 from the NPR Member Fund, which now I have been here a little bit already this morning, Carrie, and we had a challenge like this. We did not quite meet it. So we are trying again. You know, rats, not good when you leave that money laying on the table. Is That's it? right. Let, let's see what we can do about that. So book lovers, you have the power to help us meet these goals. You have the power to say more conversations about big ideas, more conversations with authors who are big thinkers, more conversations that just make me reflect, make me uh, kind of examine my own internal philosophy. That's a reminder that every time you make a contribution to Minnesota Public Radio, you are helping to power these kinds of discussions. 800-227-2811, mprnews.org. As Kelly says, there is some money on the line. But here's what I want you to focus on. This is the very last day of the winter member drive. We have a goal. You've heard us talking about 575,000 over five days. And every minute of the hour, we want to remind you why you listen and why you give. 800-227-2811, online, mbrnews.org. Kelly, do you have a second to kind of check on the tracking? I do. And how we're doing here? Okay. I, I'm Tell sitting me. here watching it. It's up on my computer. And so I'm watching those numbers tick down. So mm-hmm. we started at $75,000 from 11 o'clock until 2 o'clock. We have just about 73000 left to raise, which okay. is a, yeah. it's a big dollar yeah. amount. But we yes. just started. Every minute counts. Every donation counts. So if you are a new member, if you've been listening for maybe a couple of years, and you know, you just, you're like, I'm, I'm, I'm listening, I'm, I'm checking it out, I'm going to wait and see before I'm all the way in. Maybe this is your day. You're like, you know what? Yes, actually, yes, this matters to me. I want to make sure this kind of programming, be it the news, be it book content, be it the music that comes on the current, I want to make sure that this continues for me and for my community. You can call 1-800-227-2811, talk to an actual person. You can sign up to become a sustaining donor at $5 a month, $10, $25 a month. You could give a one-time gift, mprnews.org. You could also do it online if you're feeling very introverted today. You're like, I don't really want to talk to a person. I, I just want to do it. I just want to type the things. You can type it, mprnews.org. You can find all the information there and you can help us reach this goal. I'd like you to make an affirmative choice to hear what Kelly and I are talking about when it comes to books, when it comes to ideas, when it comes to all the news and information that that sends you out into the world as a well-informed citizen. Make an affirmative choice today, maybe this hour, 
because you appreciate books and you appreciate these kinds of conversations to be a member. A, you're going to help us meet this goal, but B, you're coming into a community of kindred spirits. We love public radio. We have curiosity. We have interest in the world around us. Make that decision to be a member. 800-227-2811. Online, mbrnews.org. Now back to our discussions. Support comes from the Bakken Museum. This April, dive into a book club with the Bakken Museum as their curators bring the pages of Sally 80's We Are Electric to life through rare books and historic artifacts. Register at thebakken.org slash events. Now to our next conversation about faith. I'm Carrie Miller. Misha Youssef is many things, but she's best known as the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, Tell Them I Am. The voices she profiled on that podcast were all Muslim, as is Misha. But she created the show so that the stories would transcend a singular faith to a universal human experience. I talked to her in 2019, just after the first season of the podcast had been released. I've thought of this conversation many times. Misha said she was trusting that a sometimes skeptical public would be open to new and different stories of what it means to be Muslim in America. Yeah, I think that trust is so important. Um, and I, I realize that that was important because I grew up the first half of my life in a Muslim-majority country. I, I moved from Pakistan when I was 12 years old. And being Muslim was not a major part of my identity. And moving here, I realized that the reason that a lot of people were pigeonholing Muslims is because better questions had never been asked by people in positions of power or people who had the power to shape perceptions. And so part of that task is for Muslims to be in those positions and to start asking better questions or telling their stories themselves. But I also think part of that is just trusting that the general public is actually able to comprehend these things and that we don't need to break down the nuance of humanity into one dimensional <laughs> categories. <laughs> what are the better questions that you're thinking about? I mean, I think you can think about it as, um, you know, meeting somebody for the first time. I think we tend to, uh, try to understand people by categorizing the way that they look or their gender or their profession. And I think when you ask questions beyond that, right, like what's a time that you realize something important about yourself or what does that say about your relationship with your family or what is the mark of your cultural heritage? How do you straddle your multiple identities? I think when you ask questions that have layers, you get to better stories and more specific moments. Um, but we also understand the, the multiple dimensions of, of different kinds of people beyond um, maybe the visual aspects of who they are. You know, it, it occurred to me that I could tune in to the middle of some of these podcast episodes and not know that this was anything about what it meant to be Muslim and American. I, I think that's both your, your ambition in the podcast, but also the kind of sneaky genius of the podcast. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's funny because we faced some backlash on that, too. Have you? Know, you? Where, oh. oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, both internally and externally, we've been asked the question about whether it would be confusing for people unless we label at the, ev at the top of every single mm -hmm. episode that, by the way, everyone is Muslim, <laughs> you know? And by the way, this is the premise of the show. Um, but I, I think... It's like when you go see the musical Hamilton, right? Nobody is giving you a warning that most of the cast is people of color, even though George Washington was not a black man. Um, that's that's kind of the same ambition that we had with this podcast is that audio, um, by definition, doesn't allow you to see who the people are. So maybe you'll give them more of a chance than you would if you saw them first or if you knew something about them beforehand. Call here from Sarah in Hastings. Hey, Sarah, glad you called. What are you thinking about Hi. as you listen to the beginning of this discussion? Well, I just want to thank you for having the discussion. I think it's really important and timely. I am a convert to Islam, so I'm a white Irish German American woman mm -hmm. who grew up in St. Paul. And I just, there's such a contrast between saying I grew up Irish Catholic and the response I get and saying that I'm Muslim. And there's this pause that happens oftentimes afterwards that I share that I'm Muslim. And within that pause, becomes for me insecurity and wonder and um, it, uh, it's kind of fraught with um, issues 
of the day. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's hard to forge those conversations more um, since I've changed my religion to Islam than, than before. And so it's just sort of the subtleties and the microaggressions that you pick up on. So, so this is pretty interesting. So you, when you tell someone this, you see the kind of what the catch in their expression, the, the catch in their, in their uh, reaction, but then you project a lot of uh, information onto what's happening in that, in that pause. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think it would be that way if it weren't now, you know, the way, the way things are right now. And True, very true. What, what, if it, what if my projection is valid and what if it is my own insecurity based upon <laughs> the times we're living in? You know, it becomes complicated. And what if it's both, which it exactly. probably is, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Misha, what do and, you think? Yeah, I mean, I've had similar experiences actually internally, like within the Muslim community. Um, one of the episodes uh, with the comedian Ahmed Weinberg, we talk about that moment with Uber drivers, whom a lot of uh, Uber drivers tend to be Muslim. Um you know, when when they ask you, oh, your name, like Ahmed or, or Misha Youssef, like, is that Muslim? And I have this like moment of fear where I think they're going to ask me the same set of questions all over again. Um, and I, you know, project a lot of insecurity there and a lot of fear about judgment because I don't look a certain way. Or um, if they ask enough questions, they'll get to something that is unacceptable or un-Islamic, you know. Um, but I, I do... I, I think it's even more nuanced when you have kind of a dueling identity and you you can pass for something other than Muslim, um, whether because you're white or because you dress a certain way or you drink or whatever. Um, so I, I relate to Sarah's struggle. Absolutely. And I think a lot of our guests do, too. Sarah, are you still there? I'm here. Uh-huh. I, I'm curious as to whether there are there are times when you think I'd really like to you know, I, I'd like to have my whole identity known here, including my faith, but it's just going to be hard. And I don't have the mental energy today to do that. You know, yeah. I try I try to push myself in those circumstances because I sometimes see myself as a privileged advocate because I am white and I don't cover and that I can't hide. And so I try sometimes to, to share, you know, like with people, we, we live in kind of a farming community and sometimes I'll, I'll share like, oh, you know, it's, it's Ramadan and so... Um, you know, I'm really tired today. And, 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 you know, it's usually just kind of these looks of like, <laughs> what is, what, what do you, why are you not eating? You know? And um, I, I try to find it as points of, of opportunity, but it, it is not easy because there's often like, you know, other stuff going on behind, behind the scenes, I think anyways, in their mind. So it's an interesting uh, position to be in. I really good to have you your know- perspective. Go ahead, Misha. I, I was going to say, I mean, I, I was curious if you've ever considered covering just so you can visually display that you're Muslim. Oh, yeah. Well, I have, you know, um, we always cover when we go to the mosque and sometimes I don't take it off. And it's interesting even to see my children, you know, if they notice that I did or didn't take my scarf off. And, you know, the older one, <laughs> she she's 12, <laughs> you know, she's like, take the scarf off. You know, um, it's actually more interesting to watch her struggle at school, um, not wanting to out herself, so to speak. Um, and, and that's a whole other conversation. But um you know, they did a section on, on Islam in their social studies class, and uh, he, he made some mistakes in pronunciation. And I, I said, you know, you could correct. You could you could take it as a chance to advocate. And she said, no, Mom, I don't want to. Really? I don't want to talk about it. And uh-huh. that, to me, is more of a sad thing, I think, with our kids today, where we're not able to have. I mean, we should all be able to own our identity. I mean, this is America, right? <laughs> but. But right now, it's hard. Yeah, it, it's asking a lot in your teen years, too. Misha, you you probably know what I'm saying better than I know <laughs> oh, what I'm yeah. saying. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially after moving from Pakistan, I spent so many years just, I call it whitewashing myself. <laughs> but I, I really ran away from my identity until probably like two or three years ago when mm. um, even talking about being, I, I went through the exact same thing where I was trying to disown being Muslim. Um, and I wouldn't talk about it because the moment I would, I would all of a sudden be met with certain expectations. And so I was like, oh, rather than having to explain why I don't wear a headscarf or why I drink or whatever, I would rather just not say that I'm Muslim. Is that because it will the explanation will be complicated or is it there will be judgment involved in the way people see your choices and you don't want to have to go into the, you know, the reasons for that or you haven't reconciled some of the judgment with yourself? Why? I think there's a lot of layers to it. Um, I think the biggest part of it probably was that I have not or I had not really come to certain reconciliations or conclusions about how to be 
culturally Muslim Mm -hmm. um, because that's not a very common thing in the community. And I think the other part of it is, is, you know, judgment from Muslims for not being Muslim enough. And then um, confusing questions from people who are not Muslim, because no matter how hard you try to explain to some non-Muslims, the questions, I mean, there's so many questions, right? Because there hasn't been that level of intimacy with Muslims in popular culture. And so it's, it's totally legitimate that the burden is on each individual Muslim living in America. But some days you're just too exhausted to have to explain all of those things. So um, I think it's a lot of those layers, but probably the biggest one is just fear. You know, I was preparing for this conversation, Misha, at the same time that I'm preparing for next week's Women of Faith, and it's with Emmy Kegler. She's a Lutheran pastor. She's queer. And one of the things she's saying is, I am so many things, and I'm queer, which is important, but it's not the only thing. It's important to how I participate in my faith, but it's not the only important thing in the way I, into, I I participate in my faith. And I thought the questions that, that animate your podcast, I think, are pretty similar to what's animating her memoir and the conversation we'll have next week. Does that make any sense to you? Oh, absolutely. So our uh, first episode is with Tan France, who's the style guide from Queer Eye. And that was incredibly intentional. Um, at no point do we ask him, Tan, what is it like to be gay and Muslim? His moment, in fact, has nothing (laughs) to do with that. You know, so I think especially when you have celebrities or you have people who have multiple identities where they get pigeonholed, to allow them to talk about anything beyond that is also an opportunity and and an exercise of catharsis for them. Um, And we noticed that with a lot of our guests. They were like, oh, so you're not going to ask about that thing that I talk about all the time in every single interview? Um, in fact, Reza Aslan, um, is our fifth episode and, and he told us, you know, at the top of his interview, he's like, I've never even told my wife this story. So, um, I, I, we had a lot of moments like that where people felt like they had just been asked the same questions over and over again. And, um, it doesn't matter what identity it is. It's a very similar struggle. Book lovers, we are down to the wire. It is the last day of the winter member drive. Kelly Gordon is with me. She basically makes this entire show work. (laughs) She also loves books. We share that. And she's keeping an eye on where we are on the countdown. I will just say before we get to that, every listener, every book lover, every gift, and every minute counts. Can I count on you? 800-227-2811, online, nprnews.org. Okay, Kel, fill me in. Where are we at? Well, here's the good news. The book lovers are hearing your call. Oh, right. Yes. Yes. So just to recap, we started the 11 o'clock hour with launching Mm. a challenge that if we can raise Mm -hmm. $75,000 before 2 p.m., we will unlock free money. $25,000 $25,000 from the NPR member fund. I think that maybe it just rains from the ceiling. You know, like, I don't know. I, I haven't been in the like studio. Confetti. Like confetti. Like confetti. That'd be great, it. wouldn't it? Here's the deal, though, you guys. We just went under $70,000. So we've already All raised right. $5,000 right in the first half an hour. Okay. It's a great pace, but we still need you. And I loved what you said, Carrie. If you are listening right now because you love books, because big books and bold ideas and the types of conversations that you hear from Carrie Miller week after week with authors that make you think, that make you laugh, that maybe make you cry, that make you more curious and informed about the world, this is your chance. If you give this hour, we see it. We know that you're saying this type of content matters to me. I tune in to Big Books and Bold Ideas every Friday at 11, or I catch it on the podcast. I want this kind of thing to keep going. And I love that it's free of paywalls. So that when I say to my friend, oh my goodness, you have to listen to this interview that Carrie did, you can just give it to somebody. They can get yeah, it on our website. They don't get blocked. They don't get right. blocked. They don't have to pay. They don't have to log in. We want this to be free to everyone. And when you give, you make that possible. 1-800-227-2811 or mprnews.org. Book lovers, I've also got to tell you that when you contribute to Minnesota Public Radio, you are also powering live events. We are going to be celebrating. This is on my mind because I'm working on talking <laughs> volumes this morning, even as we uh, you know, come in on the home stretch here. 
on uh, the Winter Member Drive. I'm thinking about it. I'm reaching out to some authors. I'm talking to some other people. When you make a contribution to Minnesota Public Radio, you also power live events like Talking Volumes, 25th anniversary. That's on you, my friends. You support Talking Volumes. You support Minnesota Public Radio's live events. You support the appreciation and the commitment to books and everything else that Minnesota Public Radio does. That's what we do with your gift and your contribution. And that's why staying on track and, you know, talking about goals and pacing and all that matters to us. What what I want to matter to you is that you hear the highest quality news and information from Minnesota Public Radio and that you know you are a key part of it. 800-227-2811 to make $75,000 by two to unlock another 25000 and uh, really help put us over the goal. Online, nprnews.org, 800-227-2811. I loved this comment, Carrie. John and Excelsior said, I listen frequently and I love getting good ideas for things to watch or read. Yeah. And, you know, yes, I, John. I have seen this happen. There's the Carrie Miller effect, the big books and bold idea effect in our local library system that when there's love a it. book that is, you know, people listen to and they say, well, that's all of a sudden it's on hold. I have watched it happen. <laughs> I love that. It, and people say, hey, I want to read that book. I, I, my, my appetite is whetted. You know, I, I think that that sounds like a great one. And we see that kind of effect. If you're one of those people, if you've put a book on hold because you've heard it on Big Books and Bold Ideas, this is your opportunity. We would love to have your support to join us and help us get us across this goal. We have Again, under seventy five, under seventy thousand dollars. Excuse All me now right. to go Yay. before two o'clock. One eight hundred two two seven twenty eight eleven or online mprnews.org. Kelly and I, you know, scour the the offerings, the lists. We're constantly checking in with each other. Is there a topic we haven't gotten to? Is there an amazing author that everybody wants to hear? That's what happens behind the scenes. What I want you to realize is your contributions to Minnesota Public Radio bring you ever expansive and intriguing conversations about books. So we'd really appreciate it if you would keep the contributions coming. MBRnews.org. Big Books and Bold Ideas is supported by the Philip S. Duff Jr. Endowment Fund of Red Wing, highlighting the importance of public service, public affairs, and preserving democracy. DuffEndowment.org. Let's turn to one more Big Books and Bold Ideas conversation with a woman of faith. And this one from the 2023 Talking Volume season, when author Margaret Rankle joined me at the Fitzgerald Theater in St. Paul. Her latest book is The Comfort of Crows, A Backyard Year. Margaret grew up in and belonged to a church for many years, but she also considers nature a kind of church. When we met on the stage of the Fitz, I was curious about an essay in which she admonished herself, nature is not a sermon. So I asked her what she meant by that. I've been reconsidering my understanding of anthropomorphism yeah. lately. You know, because you're, we're, we're ta- we were taught in school that it's, uh, it, it's an injustice to other creatures to assume that they experience the same motivations and the same emotions that we do. And I'm not sure that's true anymore. But when I wrote that, what you just read, Mm -hmm. I I was still trying to think like that. Like that the point of the natural world is not to give me lessons. It's not to make me learn something. It's not to teach me. Mm. The, 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 the natural world is entirely indifferent to me in most ways. I mean, they, they're aware of our comings and goings. They know when it's safe. Uh, the animals of, of nearby nature are always paying attention to us. They're always studying our patterns. You watch when the time changes, there'll be a lot more dead animals on the side of the road because they figured out our traffic patterns. They, 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 they thought they knew when it was safe to cross the road. And then we change the time and mess up the traffic patterns. They are studying us, but they aren't, they aren't, their, their role in the world is not to teach me anything. Mm-hmm. But the, speaking of kinship, the more I watch and listen, the more I think that 
they really are more like us than not. And they're very... We, we like to pretend that we aren't animals. We like to pretend that we're making all good, all good decisions. None of them are motivated by hormones. None of them are motivated by self-interest. But that's not really true, is it? And why should we think that animals would be any different? I know from watching the creatures in my yard that some squirrels are smarter than other squirrels. <laughs> <laughs> like they can figure out there's always one squirrel that figures out how to get into that squirrel proof bird feeder <laughs> I had one one year that it was a squirrel proof finch feeder and you know the finches uh, have little conical beaks and the the entry points for a bird eating thistle seed in a in a in a finch feeder are too 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 small for other birds and, and, and too small for a squirrel, but this one squirrel got the, the, the perches of that feeder, pulled it up to his mouth, and then systematically <laughs> licked out those seeds one at a time. Oh like he had figured oh. out. And, and I know that one broadhead skink trusts me, and the other one does not. Like the male doesn't, but the female knows I'm not going to cause her any. They are different from one another. They operate according to different motivations from each other and from us. And to me, that's just not that different from how we act. Probably to them, we all look at the same, but we are different. Right? Yeah. So what conclusion have you come to about anthropomorphizing? I mean, have you have you figured out how to how to work in your new uh, perceptions about that? I don't know if this is growing older, but I lately I've sort of started to think that when people accuse me of anthropomorphizing, it's because they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> you know, like they've they've never sat and watched a bird build a nest. They've never watched two nestlings getting ready to leave the nest and seen how different one is from the other. Mm-hmm. How one mm-hmm. just flings mm-hmm. itself out of the nest and the yeah. other's like, "Oh, I don't know about this." <laughs> I mean, every creature out there is different from others within its same species and to say that is often the basis of an accusation for anthropomorphizing, mm-hmm. and, I, and I think I'm right. So you've gotten better. Really, the conclusion you've drawn is, I'm going to ignore the fools that don't know what they're talking about. That's or tell them that's they're what we've fools. Come to, or yeah. tell them that they're fools. Um, yeah. We've, I think we've kind of glanced off faith and religion a little bit in the conversation, but um, you grew up Catholic, you have left a traditional church practice. Is that, is that right? Yes. Or have you gone back? Nope. Not going back. Not going back. Why are you so sure of that? It took me a long time to get to this point. I mean, I didn't do what most people do when they leave Catholicism. I didn't grow up and just not go back. Mm-hmm. I raised three children in the church. I married in the church. I buried four parents in the church. Um, The whole time I knew that the church was never going to ordain women in my lifetime. The whole time I knew that a lot of what contributions from parishioners went to were things I didn't agree with, I fundamentally, passionately disagreed with. And what the church gave me was enough to overcome that. And then Catholics helped to elect Donald Trump. And it's just like, I don't know if it was the camel that broke the, cam- the, 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 straw. the straw that broke the camel's back, or if it was like, I, I didn't need what it offered at that time, and I don't still. You, you wrote in 2018 in a column, for me, a church can't summon half the awe and gratitude 
inspired by a full-throated forest in all its indifferent splendor. In that column, you had decided to go back to church on Easter Sunday. I did, and I did go back that Sunday. And something had changed. I, don't, I think it had changed in me, obviously. So you'd been away... You were drawn back on that Easter Sunday. There are. It's wrong to say that I. That it doesn't give me what I miss. I still miss the singing. You know, I still miss the handshake of peace. Mm-hmm. But I never did believe that that was the sole repository of truth. I just thought it was one manifestation of truth. I always believed that. And so it was... It was, you know, a tentative return only to feel a little bit alienated when I got there. I, maybe I had just lost the knack of being Catholic. I don't know. It's a big decision to say these people I've known and who know me right. are no longer my kin in some But I ways. didn't say that. I, that isn't what I said. What did you say? The formality of it was not what I wanted anymore. I wanted the forest instead. So... But that doesn't mean I don't still love those people, that I don't still want to be with them. Are you with them? Well, the... I continued to volunteer for a, a homeless rescue organization until I went on book tour for late migrations, that, and the pandemic kind of ended that whole thing. So, yeah, I was still in touch with them, still felt as close to them as I ever had. That's a pretty um, circumstantial way to know someone. It, it isn't like, for example, in my neighborhood— Mm-hmm. The neighborhood we've lived in for 28 years raised our three children, and that group of people is as politically diverse as, it, as any group of people can be. But that is a very foundational connection that was different from seeing the same people in church once a week. Mm-hmm. These are people, you know, who got in their cars and drove three hours south from, for my mother's funeral. These are people you know, who sat together in the pew when one of them lost a 16-year-old child. These are people who have been together through miscarriages and divorces, and that connection has nothing to do with politics. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you miss, or, or you don't miss, the ritual, the, no, I the don't. sharing of... No? Mm-mm. Wow. You say that so... I'm not saying I won't certainly. ever decide that I miss it, but I don't miss it right now. I really don't miss it. I, I, actually, I, I credit a lot of things to menopause. <laughs> <laughs> That's not where I thought this was going. <laughs> I mean, I really... I, I, speaking of hormonal motivations, you know, that... <laughs> that uh, reduction in oxytocin hit me in a really profound way because it meant that as somebody who wanted to go along to get along and who wanted to um, make peace, I just felt less of an impulse to do that. <laughs> um, but, but in truth, you know, I feel less of that, you know, they call that the tend and befriend hormone. Mm-hmm. As opposed to the fight or flight hormone, and and I think it's a, I think it's a true thing. I don't I don't mind when I make people mad anymore. I don't um, feel the need to smooth over a disagreement. I don't care about the mean comments. Like truly, I don't care. Really? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Wow! You have been freed. I am free. That's either menopause or Jesus. <laughs> it, would we be able to see that change when it was happening in your writing? Maybe. I, I think at one point I just said, I'm not going to write about this anymore. 
when when I've when when the editor an editor called and offered me the chance to write weekly for the Times, he named some stuff that they were happy I did, and one of them was that I was I was willing to write about my faith, and at some point I stopped being willing to do that. Hmm. And I don't, I can't really nail when it was, but um, it, it, I couldn't see the value in it. I couldn't really? see that it had made any difference at all, and it opened me up to a lot of hurt. To publish something is to invite someone else's opinion. Mm-hmm. And I guess at some point you start doing a little bit of calculation. Like, how much of it is worth the aggravation huh. that is going to come my way if I do this? And in some cases, the, the calculation was very much, okay, well, I don't especially like writing about politics, but I am going to. That's a, a moral obligation I feel I have. I mean, talk about inviting reaction, Exactly. Right? Exactly, but that's a... I don't know why, but writing about something as intensely personal as a relationship with the divine is different than trying to call out injustice when you see it. What, what I wondered about that was whether you were reaching people who might read your columns about politics who, you know, very easy for them to say, well, I don't know where she comes by that, and I'm not going to read that. But it was, it's harder to do that when you're writing so personally about your faith. The thing about faith, especially, well, I, I guess I can't make a universal statement about it, but to me, it's everywhere. Like, it's all over this book. I don't call it by it that is. name. So if you are a person of faith, you see it. And if you aren't, you don't. And that's a very pleasant place to be as a writer. <laughs> it's amazing to me how you can know something about the questioner by the questions. Because the ones who are looking for hope find hope. And the ones who are looking for an art- articulation of despair find despair. And the ones who are looking for an integration of faith and ordinary life on that too. Margaret Renkel at Talking Volumes and three, three different women who come from very different experiences to an expansive conversation about faith. We want to remind you with big books and bold ideas, it is about the books. It's about the authors, but it's really about ideas. It's about personal experience. It's about bringing your own kind of life philosophy to a big idea. Kelly Gordon and I work on this week to week. We love books. We love the idea of having these big, expansive conversations. And because you're listening this morning, we're bringing you into our circle and we're reminding you that when you make a contribution to Minnesota Public Radio, you are powering more discussions about books. You're powering talking volumes, celebrating our 25th anniversary this fall. You're powering live events and everything else we do at Minnesota Public Radio. We have a goal. You've heard about that all morning. I want to remind you of the bigger picture. It's everything that comes out of the radio that you engage with online and that you go to as a live event. NPRnews.org, 800-227-2811. All right, Kel, now that I've said all that, where are we at? How are we doing? Yeah, we are just taking it away. That's how it goes. One donation at a time, one person at a time. To remind everyone, we're trying to raise $75,000 before 2 o'clock, and that will unlock an additional $25,000 from the NPR member drive. We have about 68000 left to go. Okay. So we're watching. It is happening. You know, we are watching mm-hmm. this number tick down. And I feel like this is exactly what happens when we call on the book lovers of Minnesota who listen to big books and bold ideas and say, you know, we really need you to send a message right now that this kind of content matters, that you mm-hmm. tune in because you want to be challenged, inspired, have your curiosity piqued by ideas, by books, by people from across a spectrum of 
Minnesota, and America. So right now, we're asking for your support on this final day of just a five-day member drive, our winter member drive here at NPR News, to say that you support this type of high-quality journalism programming, and you want it to continue. NPRnews.org or 1-800-227-2811. Book lovers, we have the power. Feel the power, right? (laughs) Just as Kelly says, you can send a message that you love books, you want to hear these kinds of conversations that are as much about life and ideas and experience as they are about the book itself. You tune in, you hear us counting down on this goal. I hope this is a moment, you have a moment to step up and say, you know, I could make a difference. I love books. I love that kind of programming. I've been to Talking Volumes. I I catch Carrie's book stuff on the podcast. If you have a moment to step up, I'd really appreciate it. And do what you can to help us meet this goal. 800-227-2811, mprnews.org. I want to remind you, when you hear these big goals, it's not about the biggest number. It's about the individual responsibility and contribution. That's what these membership goals. It's about the community stepping up to go, you know, I could do something for the common good. Hey, I could do this because I listen to Morning Edition or I tune into All Things Considered. What can you do? And can you do it today on the last day of the drive? 800-227-2811 online, mbrnews.org. Now, Carrie, sometimes I'm surprised to find people who still do not necessarily know this, that most of our budget really does come from listeners, from people each giving what they can. It's exactly what you said. Public media is funded by the public because the public is saying, we want this to be a a Mm -hmm. thing that is available. This is a public good. We are so honored, really, to get to make this kind of programming for our communities that we love. We're asking for your support. Help us unlock this extra $25,000 from the member fund, 1-800-227-2811 or nprnews.org. Just keep this in mind, every listener, every gift. And on this day, the last day of the drive, Kelly, every minute counts, right? That's right. 800-227-2811 online at mprnews.org. And thank you for listening and giving.